None of us like a warning, do we? But the warning coming from here straight away, and it's difficult, it's impossible to miss, is that sin is your biggest problem. And I know we've got struggles and difficulties, but the thing that seizes you the most is your sin and the sin of other people. Remember what sin is. Sin is the attitude of the heart that says, I can live with me at the centre in God's world. I have it within me, wisdom enough to figure out how to get through the day. I have it within me to overcome. I can make really good choices, but of course, evidence all to the contrary. The screaming news here is you don't get casual with sin. That can be put them away quickly. You cannot get casual with sin. Because what is at stake is far, far, far too valuable to put at risk. And I know we like to have that, that, you get that sort of buzz and that buzzy feeling, don't you, when you sort of try to, well, you you flirt with temptation or you flirt with ideas or you try to live risky. In fact, the songs that get pumped out uh, out of uh, MTV and over Radio 1 or whatever it is you listen to tell us that it's a great thing to lose control. Actually, life, liberty is found in losing control, but actually here we're being told that that is the path towards absolute calamity. And so, here, the Apostle Paul, speaking to a church who had got casual with God, they just assumed upon him. Have you ever got into that? Of course you have. I mean, if ever any of us walked into this room to gather together with a sense of awe of who God was, things would look totally different. But what we do is we stroll together. Oh, isn't the Lord blessed that I managed to pull myself out of my pit this morning and come and attend? Some of us even arrived on time. Yet we stroll in as if God isn't the author of life. In a moment, if he ceases to keep your blood capillaries open, pop, you cease to exist. And yet we just casually assume. And Paul is writing to a church that has been doing that. And the way that that attitude, well, that attitude has taken root, and the result of it is has impacted their actions. So we heard a little bit about it last week, didn't we? They've got people in their, in, uh, in their church involved in sexual immorality. And they're almost proud and cocky about it. There were other members of their church who had taken each other to court and trying to get, it was all about me and my rights and I'll live for me. No reference to the fact that they lived under God and he was the one who had bought them for himself and they were to live for him and his purposes. And here we find that they're still carrying on. Some of them are going to um, various festivals and religious gatherings with other pagans and involved involved in sort of um, pagan idolatry. And there was no sense of the preciousness and the worthiness and the value of who God is. And so what Paul does is he pulls out from history an object lesson for them. A warning lesson. And so let's quickly go back, have a look. Look down, if you would, at chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant. Is ignorance a good thing? Ignorance isn't just a lack of knowledge. Ignorance is a state of mind. Ignorance involves... It's where we get the word ignoramus from. I think I know, but I don't. So, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Do you remember what Helen did a few minutes ago? Helen unpacked for us the fact that God had rescued his people out of Egypt 
and they were under his cloud of protection. Though they didn't deserve it and couldn't earn it, the character of our God was on show because God is a rescuing God. He sees people stuck in their calamity, trapped under oppression, and he pulls them out. So he put them under his cloud. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Do you remember how he brought them out through the Red Sea and part of the waves? And all the people were going, wow, isn't God amazing? He's awesome. He's rescued us. No, they weren't. They were whinging about it. He was saving them despite the fact they were sinning against him. Carry on. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They had hors from heaven. He sent them the wind that brought the quail and he sent them the bread from heaven. And what did they do? Say, Lord, you're amazing. You're wonderful. What did they do? Whinge, moan and grumble. As he was saving them. Have you ever noticed that with your kids? They're about to step out in front of an oncoming truck and you grab them by the hand and you save them from squishness. You pull them in and all they're doing is, What are you doing? I'm a lovely time in the street. Because that's what kids do. That's what some of you do when people offer you grace. I don't do it away. And they were exactly the same. They had this massive privilege. Verse 4, and drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Do you hear that? Please, please, don't rest thinking, do you know what? I can never fall spiritually because I roll up to church once a week. I'm untouchable, baby. The warning here is that people who had great privilege, who tasted the rescuing power of God, and they were scattered. You see what that says there? They were scattered. Verse 5, Nevertheless, the God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the... They came apart. The wheels came off. It fell apart. And then we find out why this is being recorded. In fact, this is recorded twice in verse 6 and in verse 11. Now these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. Because the Lord God looked down the corridors of heaven and he saw that the people in Corinth and the people in Speak Baptist Church might be tempted to think they know might be tempted to take sin as just a small thing and the majesty of God as just a small thing. And so God set up historical events as object lessons. Do you remember how he he delivered the people out in the Red Sea, through the Red Sea? He redeemed them, he rescued them, and that is a historical event that is a picture of what God does to rescue us. More than that, we're being told here that there was a whole historical event called the nation who acted out their spiritual wickedness and the Lord sort of like took a snapshot of it to give to us on whom the fulfilment of the age has come, i.e. those who would trust in Jesus. He's given it to us. This is our sin. He's moved history so that we wouldn't be ignorant, foolish and flirt with the danger that sin is. Why? Because sin wrecks stuff. And you know that because you've been on the receiving end of other people's sin. It just scatters. The wheels come off. Oh. As we talked about last week, so often when the sin makes things scatter and the wheels come off, quite often what we'll do is we'll retreat into our sin as our hope of salvation out of it. 
What he does is he picks on four areas here. He, says, he shows four things that actually are two things. Right? Four things that are two things. Can we see these in there in each in a verse, verses 7 through to 10? He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. And here he's talking about what happened in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. Do you remember Moses up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments? The people were just sitting under the cloud of God being rescued and they started scratching their beards, scratching their heads and thinking, he's a bit long up there, isn't he? We need something to worship here. I know God rescued and all that, but we need to sort of make him up a bit. So they had a whip round. They were chucked in the earrings, they chucked in the gold chains, got a load of gold together, and out jumped a golden calf. And there it was, a statue of a cow, and they all started bowing down to it and dancing around it in a provocative manner and engaging in pagan revelry, worshipping something. They said, these are your gods. This is what delivered you out. This is where life and hope and joy is found. Idolatry. And you say, hold on, Steve, we don't do that, do we? What does your thought life turn to when you feel low? When you're miserable in the morning, what do you look forward to as your source of joy and hope? What is your pick-me-up? Whatever that pick-me-up is, is something that you have set your hope and joy on. I'm tempted to idolise the thought of a holiday. Anybody else? nice tub of ice cream and in that moment what you do is you say you know what pondering the Lord he can't cut it but the ice cream can and in that moment God is taken from being the majestic king down to a pot of Tesco value ice cream do you see? (coughs) that's not all second of all not only in verse 7 he brings idolatry what's the next one? Number, uh, verse 8 we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died there's an instance you can find it in Numbers chapter 25 where after they'd sort of been told keep yourself as pure people you've been bought by God to live for God and God is a God of faithfulness and purity and joy and peace and light they're like oh I don't know whether I like that I think I'd like to bit of crack out on my own and they realised that within the nation they couldn't do that. So they started to have uh, sort of entanglements with the Moabite nation. So much so that what they, they would do is they would order some of the uh, Moabite women, some of the prostitutes, to come in and the fellows would have their way with them. And the impact within the, within the, the camp was just gross immorality. Now let me remind you of what we talked about last week. That word in there that's used for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneo, which is where we get the, get the um, word pornography from. It is any kind of indulging in sexual action or fantasy that is outside monogamous, committed, man-woman, lifetime relationship. So it's fornication before marriage. It's adultery after marriage. It's engaging in just letting, giving your sexuality, which God has given you as a gift, to something other than the direction in which the Lord has called us to give it. But the problem is, is because we're in a sex-saturated culture, what we do is we always minimise it, don't we? So nowadays, we don't use the, the phrase uh, fornicating. We talk about just fooling around. It's not what the bo- baby's born in that situation think of it as, is it? We don't talk about I'm um, giving in to sexual temptation. Nowadays, and this is one that the fellas, we're terrible at this, yeah, rather than saying I'm giving in to sexual temptation, what we do is we say I'm struggling with it. 
which basically tells us his code for I gave into it. We don't say I'm committing adultery, what we do is I say I'm having a bit on the side or a fling. And God says, and he knows, it smashes stuff and makes him incredibly small. Those two, the first two, I put under the category of cravings. Look back at verse 6 for a second. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. That idea of setting our hearts on, in the ESV it says this, that we may not desire evil as, as they did. In one of the older versions it says, the longings of our evil hearts. This is a kind of craving thing. There's some ways in which we sin against God and deny him and his preciousness by things that we crave after. And I've often told you this, there's a couple of categories for desires within the New Testament. There's cravings for things that in and of themselves are good, but they've run out of control. That's like gluttony, okay? Food is a good thing, agreed? But when it becomes your comfort and your salvation, when it starts being the master of your life by saying to you, "Uh, you have to have me, you have to have me, then what that is, that's a good desire that's been corrupted and twisted. And don't we see so many people who are just miserable because of the fact that well, has that one gone wrong? That's a good desire gone wrong. Here what we've got is things are just flat out evil. Pursuing stuff that is wicked. Do you get the difference? Both of which will kill you, but the one that's in focus here is a craving after and a desiring after, a longing after, a pursuing. I mean, we talk about cravings, don't we? I've got to have it. This thing that is actually an affront to God and will destroy you. But notice how it shifts. If we've got two things that are cravings, look at the next two. I'm going to read them to the, both of them and then go back to them. Okay? Uh, verse 8. Oh, sorry, verse 9. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And we do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So back to the first one. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed. Now this is a reference to Numbers 21. Uh, This is where they challenged the Lord and said, He doesn't love us. He won't provide for us. He won't give us the goodies. We were better off in Egypt. Grumble, 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 grumble against the Lord. And very closely after it is the one in verse, uh, verse 10 there, which is talking about Numbers 16, where they actually grumbled against Moses as the leader that had been put over them. So do you see these two categories? On the one hand, we've got the Lord saying, watch out for this type of sin. It's craving for evil stuff. Watch out for this other kind of sin, which is challenging God. This is what I want. You haven't given it to me. Do you get that? Which one do you swing to the most? So you give yourselves to craving, some of you, and others of you attempted to just live in a self-pity party all the time. Oh, poor me. Do you know what? If God really loved me, this is what he would do. Oh, dear. And it often shifts towards jealousy and bitterness and ingratitude. I know how my life should have gone, and it hasn't. How come they get that, Lord? Why don't you give that to me? How come they've got that? Lord, you've obviously said, if you love me, you give me that. And both of those two things utterly deny the majesty of God. One says, I can get better than God. The other says, I know better than God. I, I, I can be God in my life. I just want God to come alongside me and do what I want him to do. 
And in this little section we're being told it got them scattered. The wheels came off and it blew them totally apart. And as he looked at this Corinthian church, the same things were going on there. And if the Apostle Paul was to come today, would he see anything different in our hearts? No. And the reason I know that is because of what comes up in the next few verses. Look down at it. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. In other words, it's in you! The thing is, is when we're tempted to sin, you've been there, we're tempted to believe that we're really unique. Oh, nobody's ever struggled like this like I have. Oh, if the things that had happened to me had happened to other people, they'd really understand. I'm unique. I'm the only one. And that's what the devil whispers in our lives, because what we do is we take that one step further, which means it's okay. We use it as a self-justification to giving in to our cravings, to giving in to our challenging and our grumbling. Do you see? We give in to our, um, I know what I want, and I want it now, Lord, and if you don't give it me, oh. In fact, it pushes even harder. Look at the next verse. So if you think you are, a, are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You see that? It's like saying, there's nothing new under the sun. What are the ways in which your sinful nature tries to grab a hold of you and tell you to rebel against God, be ungrateful, go after stuff that will wreck you and dishonour God, is by saying, well, you're unique. No, you're not. We're all made of the same stuff. In fact, it's great at humanising. He's saying, actually, it says that it's common to man. Effectively, what it's saying is, you look at somebody else who's fallen. You look at somebody else who's living a profligate lifestyle. You look at somebody else who's messed up. You look at somebody else and you say, I'd never go there. And we've been told in these verses explicitly that there is nothing, no sin that conceives you that is not common to man. In other words, the same seeds of the most gross and horrible things sit in each one of us. And it's only occasion and opportunity that has restrained us. So if you're not somebody who has just totally shipwrecked your life, don't think it's because you're cool. You need to think it's because, wow, God put the brakes on me. He put the brakes. He put the brakes. I could have been in such a worse state. Which immediately is wonderfully comforting, isn't it? To know that God is with us. But we've got, to, we've got to camp out here. I need to camp out the rest of the time. Look at this. Back to verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the age has come. So everything I've spoken about up to now is watch out! Sin is really big. And if you think you can beat it, you are wrong. If you think you can overcome sin, you are wrong. Notice it's got military language. Do you notice there in verse, uh, verse 12? So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's like in a battle language. Verse 13. No temptation has seized you, grabbed a hold of you, seized you except what is common to man. So picture an army gathering around this tiny little city that's just sort of encamped and they've got it's a siege that's going on there and there's no way out and the people inside are saying I'm stuffed how on earth can I be set free how on earth can I live how on earth can I thrive and there's like squeezing in 
It's only at that point that when the rescue comes, you'll grab a hold of a rescue. Everything I've said up to this point is so that you would realise how serious sin is. The Lord takes it so seriously. But now, he says, but there's somebody bigger. There's somebody bigger who, if you've been causing sin, can liberate you. If you give way to sin too many times, can change you. Who will come near. And look at this, there in verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Let me just say that again. And God is faithful. Faithful is not just a statement of his character. It's a statement of his condition in relationship to you. Do you see that? See, sin says to you and me, you have to have me. Or, if you don't get what you want, stamp your feet, shout, yell, and have a self-pity party. But neither of those two things are being very faithful to you, are they? They're trying to master you, trying to control you, and trying to lead you into death. But here, the Lord comes and he says, I will be faithful with you. Which is shockingly amazing, because who is sin against? Him. It means that the Lord walks into a relationship with his people with his eyes wide open. Please banish from your idea the idea that, uh, banish from your mind the idea that, well, if I just start to prove faithful to God, then he will be faithful to me. No. At the point where they're utterly unfaithful, utterly undeserving, the Lord comes and says, I'm going to lock you into my faithfulness, and once you receive that, and when you're in that, it will suddenly change things so you are free enough to start becoming faithful to me. You are safe enough, secure enough, locked into my mercy and grace. Can I tell you, that's how a marriage is supposed to work. You get the ring on your finger, you're locked into a legal thing, and then you can start to go to work on each other. You can start to put off the sins. You can start to open up all the... We can drop the masks for a start. You can start being honest and helping one another grow as people, as individuals in the Lord. Do you see that? But of course what we do is we don't want to believe that, so how many years within a marriage does it take us to start having our guards knocked down? How many secrets do we still keep from the people we've been married to for years? How many little twists of the truth to hide our infidelities and our unfaithfulness? You know, after last week, me and Jane, we uh, sat down for two hours and just started confessing our secrets to each other. Well, do you know, on one level, I want to agree with you, it can't be that bad and still talking, but actually, no, I think it was that bad. But we know that with the Lord there, he's locked, because of his faithfulness, we can deal with each other's unfaithfulness. So it was that bad. It was horrendous. And there's plenty of you, I'm just going to talk to the marriage for a second, what we do is we get into a relationship of codependency. Wife. I don't want him messing with my sins, so I know he does that and clicks on that and spends that. But I'll leave it alone so that he doesn't start messing in my nurtured sin. Husbands. I can't believe she speaks like that and spends that, but if I start calling her up on that, what might happen is she might start delving in what I'm doing. And I don't want to be honest about it. 
I don't want to face up to what I'm like. I don't want to have to repent. Codependency. So what we have is just this thing that both of us, both, both, both of us know is going on. Both of you know is going on. But you just sort of pretend. And what you do is you give Satan a foothold. So that's me just speaking to the marrieds particularly. If you're somebody who's not married, don't think you aren't, aren't hiding stuff. You say, oh yeah, no, I'll deal with it later. And it doesn't get dealt with. I tell you, you need to be in really, really close accountability groups. You need a friend who you can be honest with. So I meet three or four times a year with four pastors, well, well there's four of us together. And the kind of things that they ask us, uh, we ask each other, are very personal. Does that mean that I could not pull the wool over their eyes if I wanted to? Of course I could. But I know those guys love me enough that nothing will shock them and I can be totally honest about my failures. I can be totally honest about my things that I'm utterly ashamed of. And if I can be honest enough with them, then there's a chance that I might be able to break free of them. But if we're not in faithful relationships, then you're not safe enough to do it. If I knew that my, if I didn't know my wife was totally for me and would stick by me no matter what, would I confess to her? I'd be an idiot. Does a criminal confess to a judge? Of course they don't, because they know the judge will punish them. But you can confess to somebody who you know has got your back and loves you and has proven it and is faithful. You can be honest and then see yourself breaking free of those sins. And God comes to us and says, forget your wife, forget your husband. They may or may not be faithful. They may or may not have enough guts and control within themselves to be able to accept you as you are, recognise it and be, stick by you to help you to change. But I will, says the Lord. I went into this with my eyes open. I am faithful. I know what you've done. I was there. I know what you're still doing. I know what you're still moaning about and still craving after. I'm there. It's my past, present and future. I'm omnipresent. I'm everywhere. Can't pull the wool over my eyes. And knowing that, I am faithful and I'm with you. My presence is the promise that you can be honest with yourself, maybe for the first time. You don't need to hide your sin in a corner. Bring it out into the light and I will take you on a journey of getting rid of your sin and restoring you to some measure of healthy humanity. He says, God is faithful. But when you are tempted, no, sorry, and God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He says, I will always provide a way. In fact, in the, uh, the, the, the authorised version of this, I will always provide you uh, an escape, it says this, but when you are tempted, he will pr- also provide a way so that you can stand up under it. Yeah, the, the old version say a way of escape. So we're back to that siege thing there. You know, you've got the, the people in the town, you've got the, the walls, and you've got the army around them, and they're like, ah, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Every single time that you have ever sinned, it was because the Lord opened up a secret escape passage that just popped up before you, it was right there in front of your face, and you decided to step over it rather than take the escape. So one of the things that we do when we repent, when we recognise our sin, is we don't blame shift. You can spot somebody who is genuinely repentant compared to somebody who's not, because somebody who's not is, oh, I know I've done wrong, but... No. What happens is, when you know you're wrong, is you own it. Because you know that God had always provided... In fact, it's a really healthy thing to say, do you know what? I could have not gone to that place. And he 
gave me an opportunity to get out, but I didn't take it. And you confess it to the Lord and say, thank you that you love me enough to give me that, but I didn't take it. I didn't have to spend that. I didn't have to say that. You gave me a way out, but I didn't take it. Anytime you've sinned against anybody, the Lord has been there giving you a way of escape, but you didn't choose to take it. But now knowing that the Lord is with you, he yells at us, take it! Take it! It's because I'm with you and I'm for you and I don't want you to fall and be scattered like they were in the desert. Take it. Grab hold of it. Next time you're tempted to sin, next time that you've got stuff, whatever it is going around your mind, maybe it's gossiping about something, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's clicking on with something you shouldn't or buying something you shouldn't or eating something that's just ridiculously too much to eat or getting drunk or just being cruel about somebody, whatever it is. Stanley, I don't have to do this because somewhere around here is a trap door. Where is it, Lord? No excuses. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So he's there, being faithful, giving you a trap door, but do you notice the language that's there? So you can stand. So you can bear up. There's the idea that we're in this. So fighting temptation isn't easy. It's a struggle. In other, uh, in other books of the Bible, like Romans, it's described as a fight. But the victory is assured for anybody who turns and puts their trust in God. And I suppose some of you are sitting there and you're going, yeah, I know... But it seems as if my sin seems to offer me so much. And in that case, the place we need to finish is where we're going to go to in a minute. Look at verses 14 through to 16, 17. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. What's he talking about there? No, you don't want to get the wrong answer. It's the usual answer, the answer the kids know. Jesus! Jesus died on the cross. If ever you doubt the horror of sin... Look at him there, where it wasn't sanitary, where there was blood and ooze and muck and mess. If you want to know how horrible sin is, the perfect sinless one, who had never done anything, was tortured and killed for our sin. And suddenly, when you think of that, number one, that Jesus loves me that much that he would do it, and number two, the absolute horror of what sin does to people, suddenly the idea of clicking on that, spending that little extra, having that cruel word, sitting and moping and feeling sorry for himself, suddenly loses its flavour, doesn't it? Because Jesus died to save us. Isn't that amazing? Even as we're sinning against him, he says, put it on me. Put it on me physically, emotionally, spiritually. Put it on me so that you can go free. But know this, he says, I didn't set you free to go back wallowing in the puddle of your sin. I set you free 
to live for me. I bought you at a price with my own blood so that you could show to the world the glories of meeting the true and living God and beckon them in to join you in it. Listen, there is nobody who walks in a cocky fashion before the cross. There is nobody who can walk in a cocky fashion before this because Jesus had to go to the depths, the utter depths, to pull us out. And as you're sitting here listening to me and thinking, I have gone very deep and nobody knows. Can I tell you, you haven't gone as deep as he had to go to get you. He's not surprised. He knows you need salvation from the first to the last. He knows you need it. And if you're a believer and you go on with him for many years, at this point you're like, it can't rip up the depth of my sin, can't get any worse than this. You go on a little bit longer and you'll realise it can but he knew all along. So what are we supposed to do with this little bit of the Bible? I think in the light of recent weeks and the things that we've been thinking into as a church, we need to, number one, recognise that sin is big. It's like the elephant in the room, we pretend. What you need to have is a whole stack of people around you that you know have got your back and you can be honest enough to confess your sins with and asking them to help you stand against them. Sin that is left in the dark grows and festers. You say to yourself, well, that was last month or last year and I did that and yeah, okay, it's not going to... Can I tell you, the biggest lie out of the pit of hell is this one. What people don't know can't hurt them. That's utterly wrong. Because there's a spiritual dynamic. You do something wicked and pretend and hide it and cover it up That gives a foothold to Satan who just sows a seed and it develops and it twists and 5, 10, 15, 20 years later you're still under the oppression of that thing. If there is stuff you need to be honest with your spouse or your kids or your parents or your best friend with, do it today. Do it today. The fellows last week, I warned them, I sat them in there, said within the next week or so, each one of you, the elders, we're going to eyeball you and tell us what do we need to know about you that we can be helping and praying into. You want to keep it secret? Keep it secret, it'll kill you. Bring it amongst the brothers of people who love you and care for you. And with the Lord's grace and mercy, be free. Be free. Start again. Regrow. So what are we supposed to do this? Number one, be honest. Get our sin out in the open. Don't be one of those who thinks, you know, take heed lest I fall. He thinks it's a possibility. But second of all, we're supposed to just look to Jesus and go, wow. You knew all along what I'm only just beginning to see about myself, Lord. You knew. Other people have given me up on me for much less than that, but you haven't. And you promised you'll be faithful. You never will. And so the next time that sin comes round, quite often what we want to do is we, too often we go with what we feel. I feel like I have to have this thing. I feel like I have to give in to it. And we think with our feelings. But knowing Christ means we don't need to. That may be a feeling, saying I've got to have it, I've got to do it. But no, what is real is Jesus and his faithfulness. I don't need to go there. I don't need to give way because Jesus is more real. I'm not going to believe the lies anymore. I'm going to turn to him as my saviour.
So we're going to sing a song which is called Two Sins. We've sung it many times before. It talks about the different attitudes, the two sides of sin. One is turning away from the true and living God and one is turning to something else. One is saying, actually, you can't cut it true and living God, creator and sustainer of my soul. My soul aches for more than you can give me. I'm going to turn to that little thing there, which I think can deliver me. So what we're going to do is we're going to confess our sins publicly, together, in the singing of this song. Then we're going to turn towards this table, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, and then we'll sing another song after it. Let's stand and sing together.